All right. Well, we are going to uh, jump full-fledged into our discussion of uh, database interaction in ABOP in our time together today. We've done just a little bit of work with databases in that we reference them when we were working with internal tables and we use them as a place where we could get data to fill our internal tables with. But we certainly have not done anything with any level of sophistication as it relates to our database interaction. Uh, this is a very important facet of ABOP development because when you get down to it in a kind of real-world production environment, most ABOP programs that are written will in one way or another interact with a database. Whether we're talking about pulling information out of a database for the sake of reporting, uh, pulling data out of a database and allowing the user to manipulate it and change uh, what's in the database tables, or even just various transactions that put data into database tables. One way or the other, it seems like most ABOP programs have some interaction with the backend database because, of course, that is what provides persistence among different program runs, among various transactions, among various business processes. And so, of course, you have the traditional relational uh, model that allows us to define tables, uh, much like you have done, I am sure, in other database-related courses, where you will define various fields that make up the database table, and then transactionally, most likely, you will add records or rows to those database tables. As an aside, uh, the system that we are doing development on is a traditional SAP ERP system, not a HANA system. In HANA, you still have the same exact concept of database tables. The only thing that becomes different is you can create row-based tables or column-based tables. And a little bit later in the semester, time permitting, we'll go into that. But in actuality, when you're creating a table, the only thing that's different is you have a control that asks you what kind of table. And you pick, I think it's a drop-down, and you pick either row or column. Everything else about the definition of a table is exactly the same from the developer's perspective. In the ABOP dictionary, tables have names, and this does now exist in that universal namespace that requires us, in our context, to make sure that we start our database tables with our username, so as not to have our work collide with that of other users. Uh, tables have names. Tables also have different attributes that define things like how the table is going to be used, uh, authorizations related to maintenance, and so on. Uh, some of the things related to authorization we won't really get into just because uh, the kinds of accounts that we have is not really conducive to our doing anything with it. Uh, but you'll see reference to delivery class when we create some database tables here in a bit. Uh, table has one or more key fields which are designated as the primary key and you'll see how we do that in the interface when we are creating our own table. Uh, table fields are commonly based on data elements which are based on domain data. So what we're talking about here is, is data typing. 
And so it is very, very common for us when we are creating a database table to leverage a data type, which is already in the data dictionary, and uh, perhaps leverage domain data as a part of that. Now, what's the big benefit of leveraging domain data as a part of this definition? What does that allow for us that we don't get if we're not leveraging a data domain? Restrictions. Meaning what? Okay, we get the ability to do things like define validity ranges and other things of that sort that then we have the system do value checks on. And therefore, we can ensure that our data input, that our data manipulation adheres to the requirements that we would define for a particular domain. Um, as you'll see, and we, we saw this very, very similarly when we were creating internal tables and I believe even structures in our last time together when we went into the ABOB dictionary. Um, you can type a table field directly or you can type a data field with reference to an already existing data element. Um, this is the distinction between direct typing is the term associated with this. And you'll see how we do this in just a moment here in, in our walkthrough of how to create a database table. Tables have technical settings which help the system when the table is being created uh, optimize data storage and how the table is accessed. And, and the idea here is you can give the system um, information about how large you expect the table to be and what kind of information you expect the table to hold. For example, a table holding master data generally will not be updated with great frequency. A table holding transactional data will be updated with great frequency. And so the system will actually take that into account when it's allocating storage and setting up the table and the underlying DBMS. So it'll we have to specify things like what's the expected table size, should the table be buffered or not, should changes to the table be logged. All of these are things that we define as a part of the, the table creation process. So this is some of the background. Let's talk about uh, actually creating your own tables in the ABOP system or in the SAP ERP system. Uh, we actually do this using the ABOP dictionary. There's no way to create a table programmatically. So we do this in the ABOP dictionary. And, and technically speaking, what we create is called the transparent table. The transparent table then gets activated. And when the transparent table is activated, it gets created in the underlying database management system. Now it's very important to realize here, and, and we'll see several ways in which we have to be cognizant of this over the next few weeks. The ABOP system is database agnostic, meaning that you don't have to concern yourself with whether the underlying database is an Oracle system or an IBM system or a Microsoft system or a Sybase system or whatever have you, 
all of that's taken care of by the SAP uh, system. Specifically, NetWeaver manages that, that interaction. So uh, we do see this kind of very interesting thing where we create the database table in the SAP GUI. And all of our data types are listed there per perhaps other items that are in the ABAP dictionary. If we were then to go directly to the underlying database using the interface tool appropriate for that underlying database and look at the definitions of the fields, we might see that there's a difference there because the underlying database doesn't speak the same data types as ABAP does, which is why it's very, very important that we confine all of our interaction with the database table to working with it through the application layer that SAP provides. Um, you would find, for example, that in the underlying database system, uh, the table name would be the same as the ABOB dictionary transparent table names, uh, but the field types are going to be different. They're going to be converted to something that would be the appropriate data type definition based on that underlying database. And so that's one reason why we have to be very careful to uh, confine our interaction with the database table to doing it through the SAP ERP application layer so as to make sure that we don't in any way undermine the integrity of our data or the integrity of the underlying information. Uh, underlying elements of the table, such as field order, other things of that sort, they might be different in the underlying database. But the bottom line is we don't have to care about that as long as we don't do anything where we go directly into the database uh, outside of the scope of the SAP infrastructure, we're going to be fine. Now as an aside here, there are some things you can do on the underlying database directly. Um, you could, for example, back it up. Uh, you could do certain types of performance tuning to the system. But as far as actually manipulating the data and doing other things of that sort, that's the kind of thing that we don't want to do because, in fact, it undermines the integrity of the overall system and could, in fact, uh, set off some audit flags that would be very, very problematic uh, in the event that our work were ever, uh, you know, audited, which would be very likely if we are a public organization. So the transparent table in the ABAP dictionary is a database-independent representation of the underlying table. And that's, of course, going to be our uh, link that we use, our representation that is most critical for us in our ABOP programming. Uh, I made this observation a moment ago. Transparent tables, we can only create them using the ABOP dictionary. There's no way for us to create a database table apart from that. There's no way to create a database table programmatically. So having given you that little bit of an introduction, uh, let's go in and actually create our own uh, database table here. And so um, I'm going to go into the ABOP dictionary, SE11 is the transaction here. And you'll notice on this screen, the very first field there is for database table. Uh, let's just out of curiosity look at this. Of course, we could do a search for the uh, 
tables that are already in the system. Uh, let's see here. Here's you know the first 200 hits of tables that already exist in the system. I was looking to see if there was an easy way for us to find out, uh, in fact, how many tables were in the system overall. I'm not seeing it on that particular screen. Uh, maybe we'll find it someplace else. But nonetheless, always start our table names with our username, and I'll put an underscore there as well. And uh, I'm just going to call this um, test1. And then because I'm creating this database table, I hit the Create button. And you'll notice that the first thing I'm prompted for here is a description. Get in the habit of giving your description of your tables and your other items good descriptions because you'll say that see that pay off later when navigating within the system. And so um, I will just call this uh, test table for class work March. 2016. And you'll notice there's one required thing that I have to supply here, and that's this field here, delivery class. And you'll notice I'm given a set of delivery classes, an application table for master and transaction data, a customizing table uh, that's a maintenance table only for use by the customer and will not be part of an SAP import. In other words, in future maintenance packs or other things of that sort, uh, you don't have to worry about SAP touching this in any way. Uh, type L, table for storing temporary data, um, uh, customizing table, control table, uh, system tables of various sort. And what we will always pick, and in likelihood the most commonly chosen table of all of these anyhow for ABOP development, is an application table because we're going to be using this in conjunction with an application, so I will choose that. Notice here we're, we have a question here about data browser and table viewing. And notice you can either make this allowed with restrictions, allowed or not allowed. The only bad choice here is not allowed. You know, if you make it not allowed, then you essentially have created a table that in some instances is, is read only, which is going to be problematic because table's empty at the moment. So uh, I'll go ahead and leave the default here, which is allowed with restrictions. Press enter and then move to the next tab here. And, and this is now where I, I specify the fields that will compose my table. Let's notice a couple of things here. We have a, a left column here for the name of the field. I have a checkbox here where I will toggle on which field or fields is the key field. This column right here for initial values is basically a way of saying that the column cannot be, or the field cannot be null, any of the records. And then we have either the ability to leverage a data element here, which this is where we would put a data type that comes from the ABOB dictionary. Or remember we saw this last time, the exact same interface uh, attribute where when the data element is editable, this is white, and then all of these fields here to the right are, are grayed or blued out and not editable. But if I want to define the data type directly without a reference to a data element, I hit this button right here. And it kind of, this button just toggles me back and forth from being able to define things two different ways. Okay? 
One of the things we will most commonly do in our tables is define a Mont field. What is the Mont field? What is the what is that? That's the client number, the client ID. And, and that will serve as one of the key fields in almost every table we create. And that would be one that would be not null. And, and the data type of this is a standard SAP data type, which is the same as the name here, MONT. Now, I will tell you that at least in previous versions of ABOP, and, and uh, I've seen this. Uh, for some reason, I've lost the, there we go. Um, in, in previous versions of ABOP, we'll have to see if it happens here. If I try to name this field something else, a lot of times the system will, will complain. Um, and when I go to activate this is when I would see it. So my recommendation to you is just get in the habit of naming that MONT with a, a data type of MONT. Well, to see what else we can put in our database table here, I want to leverage some of the data types we created previously. And I, I have to say I don't remember all of the different data names we used, uh, but they should all start with my ZE02 name. So let's uh, find those. Whoops. And uh, what's that? Oh, thank you. ZE02. Okay, so we have an ID number. Uh, let's just use the ID number. So I'll pick that as my data type here, and my field here will be just called ID num. And then I'll, I'll create a field here called um, name. We'll keep this really, really simple. And, and let's make the ID number part of the key as well. And then name, we'll do direct typing on. And so name, I'll come over here and I'll just say that the name is a character string and it can be um, up to 50 characters long. Now notice that my short description pulled in the description of the, of the data object. So this is telling me that's client. This is telling me this is the ID number type definition because that was uh, the, the textual description we gave for for this particular data uh, type right here. So for this one, I should, I should type something in here, and I'll just call this um, full name of person. Okay, so I'll, I'll save this now. This is all the fields that we have here. Um, we'll say that uh, name can't, can't be null. So I actually have the initial field selected for for all of these items right here. And so um, I think I have finished. And so what I will do here in a moment is, is activate this. I want to point out something that I, I think we've observed previously, but just to reiterate it, this is another place where forward navigation comes into play. Forward navigation means that if I see something here and I want more information on it, I can just double click on it. And, and it will navigate me to, in this case, that definition of that data element. And then I can go back by way of the back button. So forward navigation can be very useful if you want more information as you are proceeding here. Well, I'll try and activate this. And I will discover that there's, in fact, other things I have to specify. Uh, data class. And so I'll look at the choices here. And 
we have a similar question to what we saw a moment ago. Is this going to be master data, transactional data, organizational data? The last three are related to uh, the business warehouse. This is things related to um, SAP Business Warehouse, which is their BI tool. Just ignore those three, and the one that I will tend to pick will be transactional data. Size category is where we specify how big we expect this table to be. And you'll notice this is based on number of records. And the largest choice here is uh, 850,000. Actually, no, that's 850 million records. We don't need to pick that for the programs you're going to write for this class. Uh, they'll all be pretty small here, so size zero is, is just great. As far as buffering goes, we're not going to do anything where we're working with large volumes of data, so leaving buffering turned off is fine. Notice down here, log data changes if you wanted the system to log things that were going on as far as manipulations to this table. You could toggle that on. We don't need to do that. All it's going to do is expend unnecessary system resources in this case. This is kind of an interesting one, write access only with Java. Um, I can't recall seeing that in previous versions of, of the ABAP engine here. Um, certainly nothing we want to toggle on because we're not going to be doing Java development with this particular table. Um, so I'll save these new things here. Notice this says transparent table. That's my clue to the fact that this table has not actually been created in the underlying DBMS yet, but rather is just being defined in the case of, of the ABOP dictionary. And so now I will go back to get back to my toolbar. I will apparently wait a second. Okay, and so it did uh, do the activation. I think you saw this. We saw this previously in your book talks about this. Warnings are something that just happens here. Um, enhancement category for table. We didn't set some of the things here that could be set for the table, but nonetheless, um, we do have um, a fully defined table at this point. And in fact, now you'll notice when we're back here, active next to this means that this is a table that now does exist in the underlying database system. And so uh, we have options here. For example, we can look at the contents of this table, which uh, we should not be surprised by the fact that the table is empty at this point. So we now have, and I want to make sure I write down the name of this table and what's in it because we'll work with it here in a second. So this is ZE02 underscore test1. And we have fields mont, ID num, and name. Questions about any of the things that we just went through? All right, well, for your homework assignment, and you will get one this week, one of the assignments will ask you to create a database table, and so you'll get opportunity to practice that, and it is something we'll do quite a bit of in what is left of the semester. 
Let me explain for just a second here about the the overlying or the underlying architecture here because it is very important for us to understand what's what's going on. We do our work, of course, in the presentation layer. When we are working with the uh, transaction SE80, with the ABOP workbench and so on, uh, we're actually interacting with the ABOP dispatcher. And the ABOP dispatcher will spawn as many work processes as it needs to on the system to accomplish all of the different developers, all the different work that's being done, uh, and to handle all the different database interaction when programs are actually running. On the database layer, there is similarly a set of database work processes. And so when the system needs to interact for the sake of data definition or data exchange, work processes will correspond and communicate with one another. And when the database layer gets these requests, that's when it goes out to the underlying database disks, retrieves the information, and, and pulls things out. Even in a disk-based system, everything here is oriented around performance. Average seek time, if the data is buffered, is a millisecond, which is very, very fast performance. But if the database has to go out and actually read data off of the disks, database time drops to about 10 milliseconds on average which is still relatively fast, but can be quite slow if you're processing a lot of records, which is one reason why we have to be very, very careful in our work with the database layer not to unnecessarily bog down the system. Because if we do something where we're requiring extensive work on the part of the database, then that could bog down system performance for all of the different users on the system. Questions, comments, or other things? Everyone still has that glassy-eyed spring break look on their face, like, are we really in class this morning? Is this really happening? What's going on here? So uh, hang in there. We're, we're, we're making good progress here. OK, so here's the important thing to know. ABOP development, you write SQL. But you do not write SQL exactly like you were taught in your database course. You write a variation of SQL called OpenSQL. The merit of OpenSQL is it supports this idea of being database agnostic. Now, here's, here's the thing to know uh, about databases in general. Um, here is, if you will, the core SQL language. And let's say we're talking about um, Oracle. Well, what Oracle will do is they will write their Oracle SQL, and it will incorporate all the standard parts of SQL and then other things that they have added that they think would be beneficial to people developing. And you know, so we'll just characterize that here as being Oracle SQL. And then let's say we're going to add another organization to this. What IBM does is IBM comes in and they cover the SQL core, 
But for whatever reason, there are some things that they do. It's kind of hard for me to illustrate this pictorially. They do some things different than Oracle. And then they add their extensions onto that as well. And so what you find is that every different organization that has a database product out there, there are some things that are fairly universal. And then there are some things that are slightly different. You know, there are things that you can do in a select statement going against an Oracle database that might not work exactly the same if you were going against an IBM database. So you wind up with, if you will, you know, here's IBM's SQL, and here's Oracle's SQL, and here's Microsoft's SQL, and here's some other company's SQL. And the intent of OpenSQL is to capture those things that are universal to all. And in so doing, some things that you might have learned how to do, you can't actually do in OpenSQL because it's just not part of that implementation because of this desire for it to be truly database ag agnostic. It is possible to access the database using what is called native SQL, meaning that there's a way to put a statement in your code that says this is going against an Oracle database, I know this isn't standard SAP OpenSQL, but don't complain about it. Just take this code that I have written and throw it at the Oracle database and give me back its response. Do not ever write code in native SQL. Why not? Okay, yeah, the database issue is the key. The whole idea is if we write OpenSQL and later on in time our company wants to move from running our system on top of IBM DB2 to Oracle, if we have written OpenSQL, it's literally a database migration. All of our code works exactly the way we wrote it. If we have written native SQL, we've got to go back in and find all of that and then rewrite all of that. Now, why is this something that is particularly potentially painful here in the year 2016 when we're talking about this? Cloud comes into play here. A lot of companies are electing to move to the cloud, and in so doing, they're changing database vendors. What other thing is going on right now that we've talked a little bit about and we've mentioned in other SAP-related courses? What's the big thing right now that SAP is really pushing? HANA, okay? Guess what happens if you're moving to HANA? All of this native SQL stuff has to be rewritten. None of the open SQL stuff does, okay? So right now, companies that have written native SQL are very, very mad at themselves 
because and you know in the short run maybe they saved a little bit of time but now they've got to go back and find all of that code and rewrite every bit of it now the good news is sap has some tools that you can run that will help you find all the native sql and rewrite it but the bottom line is you've got to go in and rewrite it you've got to check the rest of your program logic and you've got to make sure it still works yes sir Work process. Yeah, the work process here is is where the translation is going to happen and before it gets sent to the underlying database. And this is part of the, the NetWeaver framework. So from a developer's perspective, we don't have to care. From a system administrator's perspective, the system administrator has to have set up the system and told it you're working with this kind of database system and uh, have configured it. But as long as that configuration is in place, the translation is totally transparent to us. As an aside, one reason why this is a really big thing for companies right now is if a company runs SAP ERP on Oracle or on IBM, that's two different purchases. They have to buy SAP ERP and they have to buy Oracle or IBM or whatever. Those licenses are not cheap. Companies pay a lot of money every year to Oracle just for it to sit at the heart of their enterprise information systems and serve as the persistence layer. So it is very, very common for companies to say, Oracle prices have gotten too high, we're gonna switch to IBM and they want to be able to make that change without it being uh, catastrophic for them. Yes, sir. The answer to that in every instance, the, the, there's a whole host of questions that the answer is because customers demanded it. You know, SAP would have liked to have said, I'm quite sure, just open SQL. But as soon as customers started saying, we need a way to send database-specific commands, you know, SAP is more than happy to let you shoot yourself in the foot if you want to. So they just respond to customer demands and let customers write native SQL. Um, a lot of where this comes into play for companies is where they have done things with, with, um, with Oracle, in particular with code hinting. There's a lot of things that can be done there that is just totally not open SQL compatible, and that's what companies are finding they're having to go back in now and, and take out. So you're better off sticking with open SQL and not doing something where you'd say, well, I like the SQL version, or you know, I like this particular query better, in the Oracle variant, so I know I'm running on top of Oracle, so I'm just going to write native SQL. Do not do that uh, because uh, you're, just, you're just borrowing trouble for the future, and it's, it's almost never a, a good idea. Okay? So, OpenSQL. We do not have data definition language commands in, in Open. SQL. Uh, why is that? Uh, that's because data, data definition language operations are done using the ABAP dictionary. 
So you won't see OpenSQL commands for things like create a table, modify a table, drop a table. Those things are off the table. We, we don't even have those commands in OpenSQL. OpenSQL gives us commands for, for data manipulation. So these are the things that undoubtedly uh, you have worked with before. The four basic OpenSQL commands, select, update, insert, and delete, are the things that we will wind up looking at. Now, just like other things that we have covered this semester, there are seemingly infinite number of variations on these things. The ABOB dictionary will be your friend, okay? And so when it comes time for you to write a, a select statement and you're not sure exactly how to structure the syntax to get what you want, leverage the ABOB dictionary, look at the sample code it provides, and, and look at the various options that you are afforded because we're not going to look at all of them in, in our time together in class, although we'll definitely try to hit the highlights here. The next point I'm about to make and the next slide we're going to cover are really, really, really important. So definitely put a star next to this and be attentive to this when you are writing your programs in particular for, for homework in this class. Anytime you interact with the database, there's the potential for success, there's the potential for failure or some kind of error condition to occur. We find out whether we had success or failure typically by looking at the system maintained data object SY-SUBRC. And if I see that set to zero, then I know that the last database operation I engaged in completed successfully. Now, non-zero values will differ in what they mean depending upon what the database operation was. In other words, a non-zero value for select would be different than that same non-zero value for an update. So we'll talk about some of those variations as we go, but zero is always good and non-zero is always bad. So you can kind of imagine just a generic test you would do to see if SU or SY-SUBRC is not zero. And if it is zero, catch the error condition there. You want to get in the habit of doing that with great frequency. Now there are some instances where we don't have to check SY-SUBRC, we can use a, a proxy in place of that. And what I mean by that is SY-DBCount tells me the number of records that were affected by my last operation. So sometimes you could make the case, well, I could just check SY-DBCount, and if it's not zero, then I know that was success. And, and in some cases, that might make the code a little bit, little bit clearer. One way or the other, you always want to get in the habit of checking that. Now, unfortunately, there are some classes of error conditions that are very hard to simulate. For example, you will write a select statement against the database table, 
and you'll debug it and you'll test it and you'll come to the conclusion that the select statement works just great and therefore you'll leave out the test and then later on in life when someone runs it during a time when the database is offline and your program crashes that's obviously problematic and you did not insert code to check to see if there was an error condition and so your logic just kind of assumed that the database is always going to be up and operating. I don't have a way of taking the database offline to simulate an error condition, but I want to see in your code where you have tested to make sure that everything is good before just proceeding on and blasting through a, a long sequence of, of database commands making an assumption. Okay, questions? All right, well, let's start at, was that a question or just you were, you shift a little bit. I'm not used to that because everyone else in the class right now just looks like they're like holding themselves up and trying not to fall over. So you moved and that attracted my attention. All right, select statement. There are four different parts to a select statement. Uh, we have the word select and then we will either have, we, we may have the word single which if we see select single, that means a single record is going to be returned. Even if there are more than one records that would match the ongoing logic of the statement, select single will just return one item for us. Why might we use a select single? Can okay, you give me a hypothetical scenario where select single would make sense? I know it's early to be asking you to think, especially right after spring break. But why? Okay. the winner of something and you only want one. Okay. It's not really SAP related, but it's... All right. So you know there are multiple things out there, but you just kind of want to roll the dice and tell the system, just give me one and I'm going to take it. Okay. Sure. That, that's not probably uh, the most typical case, but, but that works. Why, where, in what other situation would select single make logical sense? Okay. If I know that in the logic of my program that there is only one person to be matched up with this criteria, for example, um, I have a database of people where every record is unique and I'm going to do a select based on a key field that therefore means that what I'm going to get back is going to be the only result. Select single may improve my performance because the system's going to go out and search until it finds a match and then at that point it's going to stop searching. Whereas if I did not say select single it's going to go, it's going to find the first match, and then it's going to keep going and, and continue to look and see if there are other matches, thereby making that not as, as efficient. The other scenario that I think where select single makes sense is you want to find out if there are any records in the database table that match certain characteristics that's a part of your select statement. And you don't necessarily care how many, it's kind of a are there any or not. 
And so select single is going to go out, and if it can find one, then it can answer your question. And you don't really care if they're 18 or 1. You kind of just want to know, are there 0 or more than 0? And select single, in that case, can, can give that to you. Select, potentially the keyword single, and then either fields, listed out, or star. Okay, let's talk about select star for a moment. Um, I am doing some training related courses for a company in this area that uh, is taken by developers. In my session, I think at least eight times, I talk about select star being evil because it's part of the transition to HANA and S4. And then when I finish my presentation, the manager of the group comes in and reiterates to the group how evil select star is. Okay, select star is, is of the devil. It should not be a part of your code. Okay, now having said that, select star is all over the next few slides. Okay, and it's just because, um, you know, if I start, and I, I, say, I say that, but actually you'll find out I don't use select star a lot in the things to come. And it's because what probably, and I realize that I'm, I'm speaking to a very diverse group here, but it's very likely that when you took your database courses and have done database work, that you are used to working with database tables that have, you know, that you've created. And they have four fields, or eight fields, or 12 fields. There are SAP database tables that have over 200 fields in them, okay? The other really, really absurd thing about it is uh, the Hasso Plattner Institute did a study and found that in a typical company's SAP ERP database implementation, over 40% of the fields have no data in it whatsoever. They're, they're a part of the standard definition of the table, but that data field isn't even used, and so it just sits there empty. When you say select star against a table, that has 200 plus records in it, you're asking the system to bundle up a whole bunch of data that in all likelihood you're just going to be throwing away. And that is incredibly for, for performance. And when you move to column store database interaction, select star is the most expensive of all database operations there is. If you need 20 fields, specify the 20 fields. That makes your code a little bit longer, but it is infinitely better for the system than ever putting select star. So what I am going to make as our rule for this class is even when you could write a select star and have it make sense, we want to not do that. We want to list the names of the fields. Now let me ask you this. Why does that make good sense anyhow? Why would a developer want to get in the habit of doing select and listing the fields instead of select star? What does select star have as its inherent assumption? That I need everything. And, and what else is assumed in that everything? What's that? Okay, you're headed the right direction with that idea. 
What Select Star also fails to take into account is this. Today is March 14, 2016. There's my table. And I write a Select Star against that. Two months after I finish that, the table gets modified and we tack on two more fields. Okay? So now my select star is retrieving more information than probably the internal logic of that program uh, takes into account. And over time, this table may, may grow or be modified, and my select star is, is now continuing to pull that in. So I suppose you could make the case that if the nature of your program is such that you understand that the underlying table might change over time, but I still want 100% of that, then that would be the case where a select star really would make sense. But otherwise, you have to realize that the table could change over time. And therefore, listing the fields that you want is actually the more portable of, of the solutions that are out there. So, uh, the select clause is very important in the overall statement because this determines the fields that are going to be retrieved. Uh, select single, we talked about, will retrieve the first match, which you would tend to think would mean that if you're going to start at the beginning of the table and read sequentially, it's going to be the first record that it hits. And I suspect in most instances that would be the case, but there's no such promise that that is, is what's going to occur. You are simply going to get the first match that it encounters and you know, realize that you have no control over the underlying database implementation of this. And so, in fact, who knows? The way IBM and Oracle and, and other companies do their searching could result in you not getting the one that occurs first in sequence, so don't make any assumption about that. Uh, next part of the clause, select, and then our field list, from DB table. Uh, and not really much for us to say about this at this point. We're not doing anything very fancy here. Into, and now we're specifying where the results are going to go. I will typically put my results into an internal table. I will also want to make sure that the fields coming out of my database go into the correspondingly named fields in my internal table. And so although it is optional, using corresponding fields of makes sense. Now this is an area where if we go back to what I put on the whiteboard a moment ago, if I had written a select star and the underlying table had changed and I did not specify into corresponding fields of, I could potentially have a real problem on my hands with data going into the wrong fields uh, in my data structure that I'm creating inside of my program. I have seen developers do this and it falls into the category of really bad code. I've seen developers do uh, select and star 
and then from database table into corresponding fields of, specify a table there, and say, well, this way, if any extraneous data is removed, it'll just be thrown away by the corresponding fields of clause, because there won't be anything in my internal table to match what I'm getting back from the database table. And that's true. That will work. But it never makes sense to ask the computer to do work for us and just throw that work away. We want to get rid of, of that. Now, you might say, does anybody care about this? Um, one of our graduates from, I'm going to just guess here, about two years ago, is now in a very, very uh, influential position in a company in this region doing SAP development. I had opportunity to talk to him a few months ago, and he shared with me a program that he was writing, and it was tied to an app-based front end. And he had gotten the code such that when the user would do something on the interface and hit a button, that the round trip to the database and back with the data was, was taking about a second. And he wasn't happy with that. He wanted to get it down to, it at most, half a second. And so he was going back through his code, particularly his database interaction, and pulling out everything he possibly could to make that as quick as, as he could, as efficient as he possibly could, because he was trying to kill off those, those milliseconds there. And in app development and in other things of that sort, that's the kind of focus that a lot of developers have. So this whole idea of we write our code a little bit sloppy, but it doesn't matter because we get the correct results, we want to be attentive to doing things very, very efficiently. So the into clause here specifies the data object where the result will be stored. Typically, it's either going to be a structure or an internal table. Someone please tell me why, in what case, based on what we've talked about in the last few minutes here, would a structure make sense? How could I put my results in a structure and, and, and have that make sense? If I'm selecting single, right? If I'm selecting single, I'm getting back one record. One record will fit into a structure, okay? But if I'm doing a, a non-restricted select, if I'm doing a select that I could expect might return multiple records, then an internal table. Notice that if I'm putting it into an internal table, the keyword table shows up there. So I put into table and then the name of my internal table. I can't just say into and then the, the name of the table. Results are loaded based left to right field match or the order specified if using distinct variables unless corresponding fields of is added. Okay? Now, this is why I am going to advise you to always use corresponding fields of. And the reason why is because I have seen students pull their hair out over their programs that don't work because of situations like this. They do a select, and they're good not to use a star here. They do select name, ID, gender, blah, blah, blah. Okay? And they don't put into corresponding fields of. Their internal table 
has fields name, gender, and ID. And what's going to happen here is the data is going to be loaded left to right based on the order specified in the select, which means name is going here, ID is going here, and gender is going here. That's a problem. This is also an issue where if we do a select star here, boy, all, all bets are off as far as what we might be seeing. So this is where I want to get in the habit of doing a select into corresponding fields of because then it's going to match up based on names. Okay? Now, you might say, is there any case where it doesn't make sense to do into corresponding fields of? Well, hypothetically, if I had an internal table that I wanted to use here and the names of the fields were name, gen, ID num. Okay? Now my internal table, which we'll assume for this argument is not something I created locally. If I define that locally, I should have done a better job with it. But let's assume this is something that's already in the ABOP dictionary as a standard internal table type and for whatever reason I want to use this. Now I have a problem because I don't have, um, I don't have matching names. So corresponding fields of here would put name here and would throw away ID and would throw away gender, which is probably not what I want to have happen here. So what I could do in this situation is come up here and do select name, gender, uh, ID, and then not use corresponding fields of and rely on the fact that this is going to load the data from left to right. Now, you might look at that and say, well, that seems like it's kind of potential for trouble. And I agree with you, but at least as a case where this might make sense and might argue for you not to use corresponding fields of. Questions about any of this? Last part of this. Oh, not. Can be retrieved into individual data objects using into. Okay? So this is kind of different here. We do into and then in parentheses. So the other thing that I could do here is I could select name, gender, and ID, and then I could have not a structure, I could just have an individual data object called name, and an individual data object called ID, and an individual data object called gender, and then in my select I could do into and then these go in parentheses. Don't ask me why, just syntax here. Name, comma, gender, comma, ID. Okay? This would seemingly make the most sense with a select single, I, I would think, in this case right here. Okay? I don't find that I have used this with great frequency, but it is something that, that is available to us. Last part, where? And here we can add a clause that specifies which rows or which records are to be chosen. If you are like many students, if you are particularly skilled with writing select statements, which some students are and some students aren't, 
but I have had students before try and get very, very sophisticated with their writing of where clauses. Only to very, very quickly realize that a lot of the favorite things you might do in your where clauses, if you're really, really into database stuff, is not supported by OpenSQL. So that's where you really are perhaps going to have to make the most adjustments here. I will give you one example of this, just as an aside, and we won't dig into the details right now. Um, case sensitivity is a bear when it comes to database operations. Um, if you want to go into a database table and find last name, where last name begins, capital M, lowercase c, and you specifically only want ones that match case sensitively, no OpenSQL equivalent is going to do that. You do not have a case sensitive where clause, at least in the version of ABOP that I believe that we are running. Now, whether or not that's been added in the newest version of ABOP, I'm not sure but it has not been there historically. So you're going to perhaps see some things like that that you're going to have to get used to. Primarily with the select statement, there are two results you can expect SY-SUBRC to be set to. Zero is success. Four means you got back an empty result set, meaning no data was found. Now I think you could see that this is an example of a statement that checking uh, the DB count might be equally good in your program logic. Because if you check DB count and get back zero, then you know no results came back to you. Anything greater than zero means you got results. And in fact, knowing that might be something that would be important to the rest of your program logic overall. One of the things that we will, well, let me show you this code right here. Let's talk about it for a second. Okay, so I am creating an internal table which is of type spfly. Um, I am creating a work area that is like a line in that internal table. Then I am doing a select from the spfly database table, and, and this is unfortunate, but there is an spfly database table and an spfly um, structure definition. And so don't be confused by it. On line one, I'm referencing the spfly structure. On line three, what I am seeing here is the database table. Select, and I list the fields here, from spfly into corresponding fields of table itab. Hang on a second. Back away from what I just told you. Let me think here for a second. This changed in the version of ABOP that we are using. That first line of code right there, data itab type table of spfly, and we even had a question about this on the, on the midterm exam. You can use that for any database table to create an internal table that matches the structure of it exactly. Okay? So notice we do have to say type table of. 
that code could be further enhanced because notice I didn't specify whether it's a standard table or sorted table. I didn't specify anything in regards to keys just because I didn't need them here. So what I'm getting is, is I have ITAB, which is a standard table of SPFLY. I have a corresponding work area, which just for the record means that that second line of code could be written data WA type SPFLY. Same exact results. I just happen to like defining my work area by saying it's like a line in the internal table because that line of code then becomes pretty much universal. Select, I list the fields. What do you notice about my field listing? No commas. This changes in the latest version of ABOP, but not in the version of ABOP that we have. Don't ask me why they elected to make this one of the things that they change, but the newest version of ABOP mirrors what you probably did in your database courses, which was put commas to separate here. OpenSQL does not have separating commas. So select, we list the fields from SPFly into corresponding fields of table ITAB. So I have now filled that internal table up. Loop at ITAB into WA, and then I write this out to the screen. We really aren't introducing anything new here except for uh, the specifics of the select statement because previously we did a select star from SPFLY into table ITAB. But here we're just making it a little bit clearer uh, what's going on here in the interaction. I do not have it on this slide, but you are absolutely correct. I, I think that what you would want to do here is after the select and before the loop, we would want to put in a check of either database count or of SY-SUBRC because what's going to happen here in this code if the database is offline? It, from the user's perspective, it will look like it won't do anything. As a point of fact, it will run and produce absolutely no output whatsoever, okay? Which the user's gonna sit there and say, this, this script is broken. And in fact, there's nothing wrong with this, this program. It's just if the database is offline, the select is going to return nothing, which means my internal table will be empty, which means my loop at will iterate exactly zero times, and there's nothing else left here. What I always like to do at minimum is you could put after the, um, oh, you know what's funny? Nobody called me on the fact that this is the slide where the lines are coming in line by line and I didn't press the space key the one last time uh, because I have to have the end loop there for the loop at. But what I always like to do as a next line of code after this is write something to the effect of, uh, you know, a number of records returned. And I can use SYDB count to express how many records were actually returned in, in this situation. Questions about this? Now I'm going to skip over one thing because we have just a few minutes left and I think this 
uh, we can take on in the time that's left. Let's talk about the Mont field. This is one of the things that I actually think is really, really, really cool about, about um, ABAP programming. And, and I changed my mind about something here. I'm going to really quickly come here to my ABAP editor and, and let me type in this code real quick. Check me as I type. Uh, high tab type table of SP fly data WA like line of ITAB select okay and for time I'm gonna do that okay shoot me I'll fix it in a second just to make you happy select star from SP uh, fly into corresponding fields of table ITAB. Remember, that has to be an internal table there. Um, right. New line WA dash Mont, WA dash Carid, WA dash Conid, WA dash City from WA dash City to period. Oh, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm like, I'm, I'm looking at two different things here. Corresponding fields of ITAB. Okay, here we go. Loop at ITAB into WA. Okay, let me just do a syntax check on that, and then I'm going to get rid of my select star. Set a good example. Saved. Uh, where's my syntax checker? Okay. All right, so let's get rid of this guy right here. Mont, Carid, Conid, City from, City 2. Thank you. Conid. Okay. All right, so let's run this guy. Okay, there's the results. Now, as I observed, I really should have, have a check here and exit the program if I need to. Um, but I'll add this, um, write um, colon new line SYDB DB count. Records retrieve, retrieved, and Okay, 26 records retrieved. All right, so with me so far, uh, I now have a, a functioning program at this point. All right, so here's what I want us to focus on. Let's talk about the Mont field for a second. Most system tables contain a Mont field designating the client. We are running in client, what's it, 405 this semester. Open SQL commands by default are done for the current client only. So what I am telling you is, this code actually has a subtlety to it that you might not expect. Line 14, this is the kind of thing that might make like a really good test question in the future. True or false? Select, this select statement is going to go into the SPFly table and find all of the records and return them to me. That that because I don't have a limiting where clause here? And the answer is no. 
It is only going to return the records who have a Mont field that matches the client that I am logged into. And it does that automatically and behind the scenes. And so in my output here where I, you'll notice when I ran this, it, everything here is client 405 and return 26 records. Suppose I want the system to give me all of the records and not just limit them to the client that I want to. All I have to do is add the two-word clause client specified to the command. And watch what's going to happen here. So, and to, so, 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 um, I got to remember where this goes. And I table, I think it just tack it on here at the end. Nope, that's not where it's going to go. All right, so I've got to clean up my workspace here a little bit. I think I'll press enter there. So notice I've added client specified. Now when I run this, that's a whole lot more than 26 records that I got back there. And you notice it's giving me all the different clients that actually are active in the system, 626 records in this case. Now, the important thing to note about this is, um, this means that I could then specify a WHERE clause and confine it to a different client than mine. Okay, so you'll notice that there's a client 410 in the system. All right, so I could come over here, let me find my code, and I could say in the corresponding fields of ITAB, WHERE, M-A-N-D-T equals 410, okay? So now I save this and run this, and now there is the code for client 410. And it looks like that whoever owns client 410 did an exercise similar to we did with Tri-Cities, where they add uh, the Basel Airport in Athens to the database table, but just for their client, and they didn't give it an airline code here associated with it. That's why that's blank there. But notice this, if I go back, if I try to limit based on Mont, but I don't have client specified, okay, in this situation, I get back, uh, I, I can't even do that. I cannot specify limiting based on Mont because client handling is being performed by the computer or the compiler, actually in this situation. So in those situations where I want to span across multiple clients, client specified allows me to do that. And I could actually do this with inserts and updates and other things too. I'm just showing it to you here in the first time in the context of, of the select statement. So this is one of the times when we're demonstrating how programmatically I can write code that spans across clients Please be very careful with that in the future and things that we do because we certainly don't want to mess up 
another class or another university in what they're doing. If client specified is used, but no client limiting code is included, I get back the data for all of the clients. I just happen to think that that's pretty cool that the system just automatically enforces data integrity, which means that if you were to write a select statement in a program without doing client specified, and your program were present in five different clients, the user running it would see different results just based on their results being limited to the client that they're logged into. So this is one of the nice things where we could write code and then down the road we're transporting into another system and the other system has a different client number, but our logic works fine. Let me ask you this, suppose I did want to add client specified um, and for whatever reason though, I wanted to specify in the where clause that it should be just the client that the user's logged into. How could I, how could I do that? I can use sy-mont to leverage the system. So I could do mont equals sy-mont. So my suggestion to you is that that's what the system does automatically behind the scenes without us having the ability to control that. All right? Questions about this? All right, well, this is where we will stop for today. Have a good rest of the day.